We all want to be happy. I don't know that I've ever met someone who just firmly doesn't want to be happy. Even if they, if they act content with their unhappiness, they, they really want to be happy. But if we ever find ourselves unhappy, it seems almost impossible to force ourselves back into happiness. Happiness doesn't really seem that hard. I, I was, uh, when I was in high school, I was in plays and musicals, and my junior year of high school, I think, I was in a You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and I had to play Charlie Brown. <laughs> but there's a song in that, uh, that musical called Happiness, and there's some lines, and they, you know, it's, it's a bunch of kids, you know, all the, the Peanuts characters, Charlie Brown, Linus, all of them, and they're saying, you know, happiness is finding a pencil. Happiness is pizza with sausage. And they just keep listing a bunch of small, insignificant things that they find that makes them happy. You know, happiness doesn't seem that hard, yet many of us find ourselves many times unhappy and unable to become happy again. We struggle to make ourselves happy and to live a happy life. Psalm 128, though, provides us with a picture of a happy life. And I think if we, we hear the wisdom from it this morning, uh, we will find ourselves more capable, more able to live what we might call a happy life. Real quick, uh, I want to look at the structure of this to get some things clear, because this psalm is what might be called a wisdom psalm. So there's lots of wisdom in it. Now, if you know anything about the wisdom literature in the Bible, you know that we can go real wrong real quick if we universalize it completely. If, if we take some of those statements and say they apply in all ways and in all circumstances, if we treat them like promises when they're not. So in verse 1, you're going to see that there is a promise given. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. That seems to be a promise. But then we have what I would call several proverbs in verses 2 through 4. Talking about you know, how your work will be and how your home life will be. Those seem to be more proverbial. And what I mean by that is they, they're true, but they look a little differently when they're actually lived out in, the, in real life. Okay? And we'll get to that in a moment. And then the last thing we see is in verses 5 and 6, we really have prayers. They're hopeful prayers, but they're prayers. Calling out to the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see. May you see. Those are prayers. So they're not promises. So we have a promise in verse 1. Then we have some proverbs, some wisdom. And then we have some prayers. Now, you may be confused because I was talking about happiness. And I think that's the main thing we're going to see in the psalm this morning. But if you read it, you don't see the word happy. You don't see the word happiness. You don't really see anything necessarily that might make you think that. But if you look in verses 1 and 2, that word blessed. Uh, blessed or blessed can mean several things in Scripture. This particular word in verses 1 and 2, a good translation, not the only translation, but a good one could easily be happy. And that's what it's really trying to get at in this psalm is happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. Happy not just joyful, not just, but happy. Like, both joyful and content and just feeling good about yourself. You know what? Sometimes we act like it's not okay to feel good about yourself. It's okay to feel good about life, okay? It's okay to be happy. 
And this is one of those psalms that teaches us what that looks like. So the first thing we need to see is that promise in verse 1. That the happy life, the happy life before anything else, and more than anything else, fears the Lord and walks in his ways. Fearing the Lord, referring to a changed heart. But walking in his ways, referring to like a changed behavior. So it's not good enough to change your heart and fear the Lord. You need to put legs on that and and make it live. You need to to work it and and live it. So as we look at this, I, I want us to avoid two traps we might fall into. One is legalism and one is lawlessness. Okay, so legalism is when someone takes their interpretation of commands or the law or or something in scripture and they impose it on other people, requiring it of them, putting on them burdens they were not meant to bear. Lawlessness is kind of the opposite. It's saying you're free in Christ, you're, you're free as a Christian, go do whatever you want. Now the reason I say we need to be careful of these two things in this passage is because of this. If we walk in God's ways, living like a Christian, without fearing the Lord, we're being legalist. We're saying do all these things without actually having the heart that that is required to do those things successfully, and when we fail, be forgiven. On the other hand, we can fear the Lord. We can say we believe all the right things and and act like we're, we're true believers, but we can do that without walking in His ways. And then we're just lawless. We're saying, okay, well, I'm in Christ, so I'm good. I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to follow any of his commands. I'm just good. So we have to beware of those two, two traps. Now, what does it actually mean to fear the Lord? What does it actually mean to fear God? Both of those phrases are used many times throughout the Scripture. And, and, and lest you think it's only the Old Testament, the New Testament uses this language too. I like what Eugene Peterson says in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He says, fear God. Reverence might be a better word. Awe. The Bible isn't interested in whether we believe in God or not. It it assumes that everyone more or less does. What it is interested in is the response we have to him. Will we let God be as he is, majestic and holy, vast and wondrous, or will we always be trying to whittle him down to the size of our small minds? Insist on confining him within the boundaries we are comfortable with. Refuse to think of him other than in images that are convenient to our lifestyle. But then, we are not dealing with the God of creation and the Christ of the cross, but with a dime store reproduction of something made in our image, usually for commercial reasons. To guard against all such blasphemous chumminess with the Almighty, the Bible talks of the fear of the Lord, not to scare us, but to bring us to awesome attention before the overwhelming grandeur of God, to to shut up our whining and chattering and stop our running and fidgeting so that we can really see him as he is and listen to him as he speaks his merciful, life-changing words of forgiveness. What is fear of the Lord? It's not being afraid of God, like we have to cower, like he is 
someone coming to, to attack us. It, it's to actually see God for who he is. The awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe. This is why uh, reading the Psalms is so good. Reading the Psalms, you can flip through this book and you will just find again and again and again Psalms that proclaim the majesty and the grandeur of God and lift your heart up to the heavens as you proclaim all the creation that God has made. All the things that he is in control over. And you see how great God is so much so the earth is just like a footstool to him. So we see that, that this God is much bigger than any box we could try to put him in. In fact, the whole idea of trying to put God in a box that we can understand is completely mistaken and, and taking things, it, it's putting everything backwards. Because in the scripture it says that our understanding isn't as great as his. He is far beyond our comprehension. Now that doesn't mean he hasn't revealed things to us in his word about who he is. God has revealed himself in his creation. He has revealed himself in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has revealed himself, yes, in the scripture. So we can actually know things about God. But our knowledge of God is limited to those same things. When we start speculating beyond the scriptures, speculating beyond Christ, speculating beyond creation, and just assuming things, hoping things, guessing things, then we've got it all wrong. But if we are to fear the Lord, we have to understand who the Lord is. Fear is the right response, respect and reverence and awe before God. I don't know if you've ever read uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Children's book by, by C.S. Lewis, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, you've probably heard of that. Well, one of the books is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's perhaps the most famous book in that series. Now, you, you have to bear with me for a minute, because this uh, is one of my favorite passages in the book. But a few things need to be pointed out. The first thing is, there, there are animals that can talk in those books. And so there, there are going to be beavers who are talking in what I'm about to read, okay? So just prepare yourself. The second thing is that there is a character in the book called Aslan. He's throughout the book series. And C.S. Lewis was very clear when he talked about his books that Aslan is Jesus for those books. He is that character. He is the creator of the world and he is the redeemer of the world. And if you read the books, you know that. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious what he's doing. It's, it's not a hidden thing, okay? So those are the two things you know, need to know as I read this. So this is a scene in, in the book where Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. They want to know, is the lion Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver is responsive, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. God isn't safe. 
We like to think that he is. I mean, the scripture says he is our refuge, he is our shelter, he is our fortress. Yes, he protects us from things outside, but he is not safe. If you come to the Lord, you have to forsake yourself. You have to be willing to die to yourself. You think you're safe with Jesus? You're mistaken. Now, you might be safe from everything out there, but you're not safe from him. He will come and change you. He will change your heart. He will change your mind. He will change how you behave and how you think and how you feel. He will change everything about you. He's not safe. You, as a sinful person, are not safe from God. Me, as a sinful person, I am not safe from God. If it was just me and God... I would be worthy of complete and utter destruction. I would be worthy of the judgment of God fully and finally on myself. The only thing that keeps me from that is the fact that I have faith in Jesus Christ. The only thing that keeps anyone from that treatment is Jesus Christ. And we're still not safe because we are in the presence of a holy God who doesn't want us to stay the way we are. He doesn't want us to continue in our sin He doesn't want us to continue to be evil with our wicked hearts. He wants us to be like Jesus. And that's a painful process. Taking someone who is a complete and utter sinner, which we all are when it's just us on our own, and turning us into someone who is more and more like Jesus, that is painful. But it's good. And he's our king. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to recognize that he is our creator and we owe everything to him. He is our redeemer and he has every right to change anything about us that he wants. He is our father who cares for us but also disciplines us. He is our son who came and lived and died for us. He is the spirit that dwells within us and prays on our behalf because we don't know how to pray the will of God, but he does. For us. So the fear of the Lord is that that moment of reckoning, realizing I am worshiping a holy God who is far more powerful than me, far more knowledgeable than me, far better than me. If I was back in Oklahoma, I might say a lot more better than me. Realizing that that God deserves my utter reverence and awe and wonder. And I don't know how our hearts have become so cold on our own that we don't bow our knees before him all the time. That we could, we could dare just sing through songs on a Sunday just because we don't know the tune that well. And our hearts do not fall and our bodies do not fall on our knees in reverence and awe of him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it's also the beginning of just getting our lives in order that we might walk in his ways. So what does it mean to walk in his ways? Because this fearing the Lord should naturally lead to following the way that the Lord has for us. And that's what this first verse says. Happy, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. I think the best thing that we can see is that Jesus himself says, I am the way. And let's just pause there. The way. He is our guide. He is our way. He is our moral example. 
If we are to live like God wants us, if we are to live in a way that reflects his glory, if we are to live in a way that is better for us and actually leads to a happier life, then we should look at Jesus and live as much as possible like him. And the good news is, is if we follow Jesus and live like him, when we fail to live like him, he is still our savior. So he is both our example, our guide, the one that we are to follow. He is our way. And when we fail to do it perfectly or without error, and maybe even sometimes we bring sin into the picture, he is still our Savior, the one who forgives us, the one who redeemed us. That's good news. That you have someone who both empowers you to live more like God wants you to and also forgives you when you fail. That's a message nobody else in this world has. So we fear the Lord and we walk in his ways. These two commands, fear the Lord and walk in his ways, are the beginning of the happy life. And they are the basis of a happy life. So what's the result? Let's look at those Proverbs and those prayers for a moment that are in the rest of this psalm that I mentioned. Looking at verses 2 through 4 and then we'll look at verses 5 and 6 together. Because this truly happy life that fears the Lord and walks in his ways enjoys, first of all, hard but rewarding work. Now last week we looked at Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And it says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. That picture of work is a harsh contrast to what we get here. In that psalm, it's pointing out that without the Lord, our work is in vain. It is just anxious toil. But we see that that is a product not of what God wants our work to be, but how sin has affected our work. Sin has made our work in this world hard. But work was always a part of God's creation. He creates and commands work before sin enters the world. And so work is hard, but it can be rewarding. And that's what we see in this psalm. Now that doesn't mean your work has to go be the thing that you love the most in this world. We were talking uh, last night. We had Dr. Alan Noble here, and he was talking through um, his book, You Are Not Your Own. And he was bringing a lot of different ideas about how we view things as a culture and how we view things in our, as a Christian and and we had a little conversation going with some, some of the younger people there afterward. And, and we were just talking about even work. And someone made the comment, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, people weren't asking what work, what line of work, what job is going to fulfill me the most. They just went to work. That, that's just what they did. You all know this. You're in Alcoa. How many people grew up here and they just went and worked for Alcoa? That's just what people did. I know there were other people who didn't, to be clear. But that's just, that's just a natural thing. We, we weren't trying to find the most fulfilling job. Now, is it bad if your job fulfills you? No. Is it bad if you go seek a job that you enjoy? No. I'm not saying any of that. But you know what? It's okay if you don't like your job. It's okay if your job isn't the most entertaining thing you do with your life. But you can, as a Christian, bring meaning to your job and do it as unto the Lord. I said last week, Martin Luther would say, you know, if, if you're a shoemaker, you know how you be a Christian and a shoemaker? 
Make a good shoe and sell it for a fair price. You can bring meaning to your work as a Christian that no one else can, but you don't have to depend on your work. Here the picture is that you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall work, and the labor that you put in feeds you and your family, takes care of you, meets your needs. That's actually one of the blessings that we see in the the first five books of the Bible and the the law. We see part of the blessings of, of obeying God's covenant are that you will eat the fruit of the land, that you will eat the fruit that you work for. You know, it's actually a good thing to work and earn what you live off of. You shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. One of the blessings of fearing the Lord and walking His ways is having hard but rewarding work. Another blessing we see, one of the things you enjoy in this happy life, is a growing and enduring family. Look at verse 3. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Bringing in some agricultural metaphors to show that there is an abundance, there is a harvest in this home. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. Lest we think that the only value a wife brings to a marriage is having children, Charles Spurgeon says this about this psalm. He says, Good wives are also fruitful in kindness, thrift, helpfulness, and affection. If they bear no children, they are by no means barren if they yield us the wine of consolation and the clusters of comfort. He's saying that bearing children isn't the only thing a wife brings to a marriage. They are fruitful not just because of the children they have, they are fruitful because of everything they bring to a marriage. And good wives are fruitful in their kindness and their thrift and their helpfulness in all sorts of ways. Now I'll also say that we need to point out another thing. See, the psalmist assumes something. The psalmist assumes that most, if not all, of the Jewish people will be married. John Trapp, uh, in his commentary, writes, At this day, every Jew is bound to marry about 18 years of age, or before 20, else he is accounted as one that liveth in sin. It's old John Trapp speak, liveth in sin. But the point is, it was an expectation that the Jewish people would marry. You know what? I wouldn't meet that standard. I married at 21, which is already young for the culture we live in now, but not young enough, according to John Trapp, for these days. But what's, what's interesting is that this has changed. If you are a Christian, if you are under the new covenant, this has changed. With the coming of Christ and his gospel, we learn that singleness is also a calling of God. In some cases, it is even to be preferred to marriage. If you see 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We also need to make this clear. Jesus was the ideal human. He was the paragon of humanity. What I mean by that is everything that it meant to be human, Jesus was. If he, if he lacked anything in his humanity, he couldn't save humanity. So Jesus was the paragon of humanity, the perfect ideal and image of humanity. He was humanity without flaw, without sin, without shortcoming. Everything that defines humanity exists within him. But notice this. Jesus was single, and Jesus never married. 
forget what the Da Vinci Code says for a second. It's true, Jesus never married, was never given into marriage. Yet he's not lacking anything in his humanity. Jesus didn't go to the cross being like, this can't be the right time, I didn't meet my soulmate. Jesus was perfectly content in his singleness. Why? It was not necessary for him to be who he needed to be. It was not necessary for him to be more human. So we have to understand that this passage, although it speaks primarily to married families in God, among God's people, it also speaks to single people saying, saying this, that where you may not have a spouse or you may not have children, you have God's family, which is the church, where Christ is the head and the church is his bride, and we live and work for him. And yes, actually, we can be fruitful and multiply, not by bearing children, but by proclaiming the gospel that people might be born again, so that there might be even more children in the family of God. So those are the Proverbs, the things that are generally true. You might have a happy life, where you fear the Lord and walk in his ways, and you know what? Your marriage may not go the way you plan. Your children may not go the way you plan. Your work may not go the way you plan. That's why I say these verses are more proverbial wisdom, things that are generally true but may not always hold true. Now we look at the prayers in verse 5 and 6. The psalmist prays, The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. See, a hap this happy life that fears the Lord and walks in his ways enjoys future generations. And because we have some older generations in the room today, I just want to push on you a little bit, because if you don't enjoy future generations, that may be more of a problem within your own hearts than with them. Not to say that children aren't annoying sometimes. Okay, we're safe. Not to say that teenagers aren't, I won't say that, <laughs> difficult at times. Not to say that young adults don't have ideas that we would just completely disagree with. But you know what, just ask for a minute, what were you like as a teenager? What were you like as a child? What were you like as a young adult? And hey, what did you say to your parents? And you know what? You weren't always wrong. There were times that by the foresight of being a part of a different generation, you were able to see things your parents did. And you were probably right about not all, but some of those things. And we, in engaging future generations, need to be able to say, you know what, they are probably wrong about some things just because they're too foolish to know it. But also, they may very well have insight that we don't because they don't have the same lenses through which we see the world. And so we have to both be cautiously respectful and wise to them, sharing insight that they need, and maybe sometimes just being quiet and giving them time and being humble and realizing maybe we need to listen to them. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. We're also, we also enjoy a prosperous and long-lasting community. We see a city or a neighborhood, or a county that prospers, that flourishes, that enjoys the goodness of God. And that can only happen. See, this is a prayer. It's not a promise. That can only happen if we as Christians engage the area we live in, if we engage people that we may not 
be the best of friends with, engage people who we disagree with on many things, in order, more than anything, just simply to tell them the gospel, that they might believe it, that they may fear the Lord, that their lives may be changed. And in a community where more and more people are coming to Christ and living like it, we can see peace. We can see peace in that community. We can see that peace among God's people. This verse, this passage ends with peace be upon Israel. Israel referring to God's chosen people. And in these days, it is not just Israel. It is not just the Gentiles. It is Israel and the Gentiles. All people can be part of God's people if they believe in Christ. If they believe, if they have faith, if they trust him. And so we hope and we pray that peace would permeate our church. That if anything, people could walk through our doors, sit in our pews, sing songs with us and say, these are people who love peace. They're not about drama. They're not about gossip. They're not about causing problems or sowing division. They are a people who love peace and are willing to sacrifice for it. What does this happy life look like? First and foremost, we have to be people who fear the Lord and who walk in his ways. Let us pray that would be how we think and how we feel, how we live, and what we tell other people. Let's pray.